When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. All right, Tales of Terror. You've got a you've got a spooky story. Yeah, I've uh, got a spooky story. So the thing that I feel like you need to know first about my spooky story is that I feel like sometimes you're in the woods and you think that's like something feels creepy because you're wondering if something bad's going to happen. But when you work for a search and rescue team, and you're searching for a lost hiker, things are creepy because you know that something bad has happened, but you don't know what it is yet. And so as opposed to like, you can't really like convince yourself out of it the way that you do on a normal day, because you're like, no, no, something bad has happened, but I don't know what it is. Once I get back up, like, so search and rescue, how long, what search and rescue were you on and how long were you on search and rescue for? Okay, so I worked on the Yosemite Search and Rescue Team in Yosemite Valley for three summers. Which is like probably the most badass rescue <laughs> team you could work on. Maybe in the world? It's possible. At least in, least in the U.S. probably. The thing that gets that reputation is helicopter rescues and LCAP rescues and that sort of thing. But like one of the things that I think we do that a lot of people don't know about that's definitely not quite like as sexy as some of that other stuff is searching for lost people or missing people. And that's my least favorite part of that job. By far, the absolute worst thing for me is the searches. Because you know something bad's happened. Yeah, but like because you don't know what it is. <laughs> There's a lot of people in Yosemite that go missing that are never found, um, which adds another creepy element because sometimes it feels like you could be searching for one thing and find something else. And often I feel like what ends up happening is you're spending a ton of time off trail, wandering in the woods, just like waiting to find something, but you don't know exactly what you're looking for yet. What do you remember about this rescue? Um, I remember that it was super hot. (laughs) It was August 
and we'd been called on a search to look for a missing hiker who had lost his way coming down off of the Half Dome cables. And so he had missed the trail. He had with some, he was with some friends and they had all, the, the trail kind of takes a sharp left and he had gone right down this gully. This patient had Alzheimer's actually and was, yeah, ended up disoriented and lost the trail. But it definitely added this level of, oh, this person might not be thinking clearly and like making rational decisions. And so the things that we normally think about when looking for people that have gone lost in terms of how that like trying to get in that person's head and think about how they might be navigating um, doesn't apply here because we already knew that when this person got lost that they weren't thinking clearly and were basically situated in this huge block of off trail kind of backcountry terrain on the south face of Half Dome and really don't know exactly where to start. When he first got lost, there was a quick hasty search of people saying, maybe he's not that far. We'll just scan. We'll go up to where he was last seen and we'll do a quick scan. And then when they don't find him that first night, the next morning, a bunch of teams go out and we're in teams of two. And we each got areas and little search assignments in this huge area to do. But it's kind of funny because sometimes you are, like you bump up against the other search teams and they kind of scare you too. Because the thing is that when you're searching, it's like, you're on edge because your job is to be on edge, right? You're listening and looking for anything that feels out of place. And so each sound feels different because when you hear something crackle, you're like, oh, maybe that's him. Or maybe that's like a clue. Or I'm looking for colors like of clothing and things that don't like make sense in a natural environment. So I can't tell you our patient's name but we'll pretend that his name is Kevin. Because all day, this name becomes really important because you yell it hundreds of times, right? For 12 hours straight, you're going, Kevin! Kevin! It feels totally ridiculous and also really weird and creepy. and then you hear nothing, and then you keep going. But then occasionally you hear like the other team also yelling his name because you guys, your teams have gotten a little too close. And so you're like bumping into people, but they're, you're thinking you're hearing things, but it's the other searchers. And so that's just like, it feels like all of your senses are really activated because you're just looking for something and you don't know what that is. But after hours of looking, it starts to feel a little bit more sad, I guess. Like you're really hoping that within the first couple hours, you're like, oh, he just lost the trail. He's right over here. And so when you don't find someone within the first couple hours and there's tons of teams out scanning this area, it starts to feel a little bit more creepy because you're like, now I really don't know what happened. And like as the hours go on and you're going up and down these gullies and trying to figure out, okay, if I was here, which way would I go? And you're just like praying every time you yell that someone's going to respond to you and they just don't. Kevin! 
by the end of the day, it's starting to feel like if this person's laying down for whatever reason, I don't know if I'd ever find him. I bet I could walk five feet away from him and not see him because it's so dense. Like this south face of Half Dome bushwhacking area is so incredibly dense. And it also just feels like the sound is being absorbed by how dense the woods are there that it just feels like, I don't know. It's just so creepy. And then you feel like you hear something and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, stop. Oh my God, wait, listen. And then you yell it again, but then nothing. And you're like, shit, (laughs) like maybe it was an animal. Maybe it's this or that, you know? And like there's bears out there and like you're walking in the woods and you see bear poop and you're like, oh my God, what if something happened? And you're just like thinking of all the worst case scenarios. After a while, you kind of are running out of things to talk about. So it's just quiet. It's, so it's the second day, and everyone is starting to have this underlying feeling of, ooh, I really hope that this person doesn't have to spend a second night out, like, unprepared to bivouac, right? And so you're like, oh, God, I don't know if that's going to work out that well for this guy. The pressure's kind of on. And so at this point, we've gone all the way back up to the shoulder where he was last seen, and we're on the trail. And we're like, all right, I guess we'll just walk to camp. We're done for the day. And we get in a call. I'm with my friend Ken, and we get a call from the ranger in charge of this whole search operation. He's like, can you just go down one more time? Like, try to think about, try to take the path of least resistance from this spot down. Like, you were just going, like, just make the most rational decisions. And so after all day of kind of grid searching and trying different tactics, we're like, all right, we're going to try this one more time. And honestly, we're kind of frustrated because I'm like so happy to be back on the trail after hours and hours of being off a trail and like feeling so creepy and it's getting dark and I don't really want to like go back into the woods. This is the Lost Lake area. And actually there's been many searches in this same area. And so you're feeling like there's a reason why people get lost back here. Like it's very disorienting and like, all right, we'll go back down. So then we start trying to pick our way down and just like thinking less and thinking more about like, just trying to think about like, okay, just follow the path of least resistance. Like if I was just wondering which direction would I go? And eventually we get to this huge overlook and it's like the most open area we've been all day. And we stop and need a snack and it's like pretty close to dark, but not quite dark yet. And finally, I'm like so frustrated that we haven't found this poor guy and I'm scared for him because I know he's gonna spend another night out and two nights out alone, unprepared is like really hard. And, he, you know, and we just like have all this stuff going on. And so finally, I just get to the edge of this overlook and I scream his name as loud as I possibly can. Kevin! Probably 500 times that day, I was trying to do the math of, you know, if you yell every three minutes for however many hours, like hundreds of times. And I just scream it because I'm so mad that we haven't found him yet. And then out of nowhere, I hear, I'm right here. And my like heart jumps out of my chest and I grab Ken and I'm like, did you hear that? I'm right here. And our first thought is some of the other searchers are messing with us. And so I get on the radio and I'm like, everyone be quiet. We think we might've heard something. So then I know that no one's going to mess with us. And I yell his name again and he goes, I'm over here. 
And it feels like he's right behind me. But I know that, like, I'm looking around and I don't see him. And we're just yelling, stay where you are. And we keep yelling and we're like, oh my God, okay, we have to go down this, like, really chossy, dirty kind of ledge system. And we're like, okay, this is not where I would have normally gone, but we're navigating down the system. And we're going, we're coming, we're coming. And we're trying to listen and follow his voice. And we're telling everyone, I think we might have found him. Please, like, just be quiet and stay where you are. Because there's all these other searchers out there. And it, like, it's so frantic, right? We're like going down this gully and we're so dirty and we're carrying backpacking gear all day. So we're just like exhausted, but now our hearts are racing, you know? And as we're trying to look for him, it's like, getting darker and darker like where you don't quite need your headlamp yet but you almost do and we're just running and running and trying to navigate this ledge system and then all of a sudden there's like this whoosh and like 20 feet in front of us on this tree branch lands the spotted owl and spotted owls have these really dark big black eyes and it just, this owl just stares at us. And we're like all locked in this eye contact trance with this owl who's landed right in front of us. And all of a sudden it feels like everything is quiet. And I have no idea how long we're in this trance, but Ken and I are just standing there like, oh, do you see that? And it feels like we cannot break the eye contact. And this was probably a minute, but it feels like hours. And we're, we start to walk past the owl and his head just turns to follow us without breaking that eye contact. And it feels like we're out of the trance all of a sudden and we keep going. So we come down these ledge systems and we finally see Kevin for the first time. And he's just sitting on a log, not facing us. He's facing away from us. So we're coming up from behind him and we're yelling his name and he barely turns around to look at us. And he's just sitting there. He's got no backpack. Uh, he has absolutely nothing with him. He's pretty skinny and he's definitely older looking than I thought he was going to look. I think he was in his 60s, but he actually looked to be quite older than that. He looks kind of dirty and disheveled, but other than that, he seems just really out of place for the environment. Like we are two miles from the trail, we're in the middle of nowhere, and he's just got this nice button-down shirt on, some nice pants, um, and he's just sitting there. I mean, he looks like someone sitting in like a nice restaurant. And I run up to him and I'm like, Kevin, I'm so happy to see you. And he looks at me like, like he can't understand why I would be so happy to see him. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot of people that have um, been looking for you. And he was like, oh, is that so? And that's when I realized, oh, he really doesn't know what's going on. And like, I'm so creeped out by this in this moment because I was expecting him to be so happy to see us and he seems like totally unfazed by the whole thing and when I like think back now to his face I just think of a face that like has absolutely no emotion in it and you know 
His family had kind of told us, oh, he has Alzheimer's. But what they didn't tell us ahead of time was that when he gets exhausted, he tends to have hallucinations. And so for the next two hours, as we tried to coax him to go to Little Yosemite Valley to camp with us for the night, he kept telling us about the forest creatures that he had been talking to. And he kept trying to walk off in a different direction. We're not going the right way. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know that he had spent a night out. No, no. And so we're, it's getting darker and darker and we're out there and eventually the other searchers come and join us and we're all making our way to camp together. Um, and we tried to ask him, oh, do you know where you were? Did you hear helicopters earlier today? There had been a helicopter that had been out searching for him as well. And he did realize that he'd been hearing, he thought he'd been hearing multiple helicopters all day. And, you know, I'm trying to get him to say, did you hear us yelling your name? Because there had been so many people out there that I wondered if he had heard us. And that I think the question just didn't even really register with him. And I was never, never able to, like, get an answer because he was so existing in another world. And so eventually we get to Little Yosemite Valley where we've got emergency stashes of dehydrated food and sleeping bags and things like that. And once we gave him some food, he kind of started to, yeah, settle in a bit more, tell us a little bit more about himself. He was still pretty out of it, but was starting to come back. And at some point we realized he probably really needed to sleep. And so we set him up in a tent with a sleeping bag and everything that he would need and hope that he was able to get some rest that night. And while he's in the tent trying to rest, everyone who had been searching kind of sat down together to just kind of have a moment of like, holy crap, I can't believe we found him. So we're all sitting down, the rest of the search team, and we're finally getting a chance to eat and go over what had been going on throughout the day. And we kind of, we we have like two things that we keep coming back to about this search. So we tell the rest of the searchers about the owl. And one of them tells us, oh, you know, in a lot of indigenous cultures, owls actually represent death. And so then there's this quiet moment in which I think everyone is realizing that we had just made it to Kevin before the owl did. Like it felt very much like the owl was waiting for nightfall um, to kind of make his move. But then we scooped in and got to Kevin before he had a chance to. Did it feel evil? Yeah, I've never been able to forget the deep, huge black eyes, you know, that just feel like portals to hell (laughs) of that I saw on this spotted owl. And then the other thing that comes up, you know, we keep GPS tracks when we're searching so that if we need to go out again the next day, we know what area we covered and what area we didn't cover. And I've made markings on my GPS track all day, but it wasn't until later that night that I looked at it again after finding Kevin and realized, holy shit, I walked right by him. And not once, but twice throughout that day, I had walked like within a hundred feet of where we eventually found Kevin, which is crazy because we're covering a, you know, an area of land that is like miles, miles wide. And it felt like, how is it even possible that he didn't hear us yelling? Like, I yelled his name so many times. Everyone was yelling his name over and over again. But he never heard us. And the takeaway that we all have from this, like, collectively but silently, 
is, oh my god, this just really goes to show how little sound travels in a forest that thick. No one can hear you scream. You know, except for the owls. COVID left over. If you haven't guessed it, you're listening to the Tales of Terror on the Dirtbag Diaries. I'm Fitz Cahal. That last story was from producer Lauren Delaney Miller. Next up, we hear another creepy tale from Eli Zabilski. A couple years ago, I took off work to hike the Arizona Trail. It's an 800-mile backpacking trail from Mexico to Utah, all the way across Arizona. I flew to Tucson and then caught a ride to the trailhead at the Mexican border. I was stoked to immerse myself deep in the desert backpacking life. Heat, cactus, perfect sunsets, snakes, and terrible water carries. This is my jam. The days are short in late March, and it was already afternoon when I set off down the trail. By the time the sun set, I'd only made it a few miles. As dusk settled in, I arrived at an old windmill. A common sight in the interior west, these old windmills are attached to a well that pumps water into a cattle trough. Before solar-powered wells, this was the easiest way to get water to cattle in a remote area. The galvanized windmill blades lazily spun in the breeze against a purple sky. I was feeling fresh, and I wanted to get some more miles in, so I filled my water bottle from the trough and set out for a few hours of night hiking. The trail followed a set of BLM roads for a while, and the walking was easy under my headlamp. The moon rose, and I could see all the desert hills around me. Awesome. I started seeing groups of people car camping near the road. Friends gathered around a fire, telling stories and laughing, just like I do with my friends. I passed them and continued walking into the darkening night. After a few miles, I started walking past clapped out RVs, or semi-permanent looking camps with dogs barking non-stop, chained to old trucks. You know the type. People want to live in the desert, away from prying eyes. These are not exactly the people I wanted to see me walking alone late at night. So I clicked off my headlamp and used the moonlight to navigate the dirt road, hoping to pass unnoticed. I could hear more dogs relentlessly barking in the distance. As I walked, I could tell I was getting closer to them, so the barking grew steadily louder. Great. I'm going to have to sneak past some ferocious dogs. A rush of adrenaline hit me, and I forgot about the cold night and my tired feet. 
I just focused on the sound of these savage dogs. I looked as far as I could down the trail, but there was nothing but pale, moonlit juniper trees. No cars, no camps, no animals. I tried to shake off my fear, kept walking. As I rounded a corner in the road, the barking became clearer. Suddenly I realized it wasn't barking at all. It was some sort of mechanical noise. The noise became louder and I started to get nervous. It sounded like metal scraping and grinding. Kind of thing you would hear at a construction site, but different, off. I felt like stopping in my tracks, even turning back, but I was committed to getting the miles in. I forced myself to keep walking forward, only guided by the light of the moon. Horrific images entered my mind. All I could think about was a hooded figure pacing back and forth in an old tin shed, dragging an axe across a steel floor. Eventually, I came up to a cattle gate, and the noise had become overpowering. I couldn't have been 50 feet away from whatever was making this gruesome metal-on-metal scraping. The hair stood up on my arms, and I kept my head on a swivel, prepared to see the hooded figure lunge out of the darkness. But nothing stirred. I still couldn't see any lights, or cars, or axe murderers. I reluctantly opened the gate and slipped through. I started walking very carefully and quietly, feeling certain now that I was approaching something unspeakable. My eyes darted around in the trees, wide and refusing to blink. I was ready to run for it, but there was nothing. The noise felt like it was all around me. Then I looked up, and in the moonlight, I could just make out another old windmill off the road. At the top, the blades spun slowly, just like the last one. It was attached to a rotating shaft that was broken halfway down the tower. And with every turn of the old rusty shaft, it made that horrible grinding noise. It became all too clear that everything I was worried about was just a stupid, broken windmill, and I wasn't going to get murdered on the first day of my hike.
having fun doing this. After the break, our last chilling memory from Kathleen Foley. Stay with us. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. In 2014, two girlfriends and I embarked on a short yet scenic section of the Pacific Crest Trail. All three of us were working mothers, and this five-day trip was the most we could squeeze out of our busy schedules. I had recently suffered the sudden loss of my mom, so even on this mini-adventure, I anticipated that the healing power of wilderness and good friends would soothe my aching heart. In the interest of keeping our packs light, we set out with one small two-person tent and one bivy sack. We decided that each night we'd rotate who would sleep in the bivy sack. I had never been comfortable in bivy bags and didn't relish the idea of sleeping in one, but it saved us from bringing a second tent, so I figured it was worth the discomfort. On our third day, after 15 miles on the trail, we hiked through a boulder field and dropped down into a campsite. It sat near a large, still, and dark lake, ringed by cliffs and overhung with brooding conifers. Something about the location felt heavy, quiet. The usual happy chatter of birdsong seemed muted. An old, decrepit shelter loomed nearby, and the giant rocks crowning the campsite seemed to house a thousand unseen eyes. My girlfriends, Blythe and Stephanie, noticed that creepy feeling too, though we were reluctant to talk about it initially. We delayed setting up camp by exploring the lakeshore, and then finally admitted to each other that the location spooked us. Blythe said that she felt like something had happened here long ago. Stephanie agreed. Something tragic, she added. But after some discussion, we decided we were too tired to press on up the trail. Our normally boisterous camp evenings filled with stories and laughter was subdued. We ate our dinner without much enthusiasm, intently listening for birds, the rustlings of small creatures, any familiar sounds of the woods that would calm us. But nothing stirred. Blythe joked, 
I'm glad it's not my night in the bivy. Yeah, it was my turn instead. I'm not sure why I decided to set up the bivy so far away from my friends, but the ground was marshy in places and I wanted a dry spot. So I enrolled the bivy about 75 feet away from Blythe and Stephanie, cozily snuggled up together in the tent. With just enough light to see and the features of the landscape growing fuzzy, I climbed into the bivy sack and settled in for the night. I'm a side sleeper. The mesh opening at the top of the bivy sack stretched over the left side of my face. I lay there in the gathering gloom of evening, the light slowly fading. I closed my eyes, exhausted from the exertions of the day. But despite my fatigue, I couldn't fully relax. I fell into a shallow, restless sleep. Then, in total darkness, I awoke with a shudder. Someone's hands were on my back. I could feel their pressure through the fabric of my sleeping bag. My eyes whipped open, but I froze in place. Without turning my head, I stole a glance up through the mesh of my bivy sack. And there, defined against the dim light, was the dark shape of a human head. The face was featureless. No nose, eyes, or lips. Just a blank outline of a face. I sensed that, whatever it was, it was male. He was leaning over me in a kneeling position, looking down through the mesh at my face. I remained rooted on my right side, petrified. The hands stayed on my back. Then I heard quiet singing. It was a language I didn't know. Whatever this apparition was, its hands were on my back and it was singing to me. I tried calling out to Blythe and Stephanie, but my voice failed me. It came out as a whispered squeak. I was terrified, but not in a mortal way. I knew this being meant me no harm. It was the, holy crap, I can't explain this kind of terror. I screwed my eyes shut and held them closed. Then. Just as suddenly as it had come, it vanished. Opening my eyes again, I lay there for a very long time, afraid to breathe deeply or move a muscle. My ears strained for the slightest movement. I desperately wanted to get up and drag my bivy sack closer to the tent, but I couldn't budge. After a long while, my heartbeat slowed. I finally fell back asleep.
I awoke with sunshine on my face. Though the campsite was less ominous in the light, it still had that heavy feel. When my friends woke up, I shared my story. I asked if they had heard me calling for them in the night. They shook their heads. They had not heard or seen anything, but my story didn't shock them, given what they had both described as the dark energy of the place. Stephanie remarked that she was glad that it happened to me and not her. We quickly packed up camp, nervously laughing and glancing over our shoulders. We set off down the trail, putting the lake behind us as fast as our weary legs could take us. As we hiked, the vision of what I'd seen the night before kept playing over and over again in my head. Did that really happen? Did I dream it? Was this all some sinister trick of my imagination? But the reality was, I felt hands on my back. In our dreams, we see things, we hear things. But our other senses, smell, taste, and yes, touch, are diminished or absent altogether. But that night, I felt those hands. I felt his presence. To this day, I believe this was no dream. Perhaps I was visited by a spirit that meant no harm. Perhaps his gentle touch, his quiet singing, was there to help ease the pain in my heart. Or perhaps he was just gently encouraging us to move on. Thank you, Lauren, Eli, and Kathleen for sharing your spooky stories. Well, none of us are going to be able to sleep tonight. Thanks for that. Seriously. Music today from Kai Engel, Aiden Baker, and David Beer. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Andrew Burton, Lauren Delaney Miller, Ashley Langholz, Becca Call, and me, Fitz Call. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Happy Halloween. Thank you.